Good morning. Keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. That passage in Luke will be our text this morning. And the title of the sermon is taken directly from verse 13. He chose 12. He chose 12. In this text, we have a brief account of Jesus choosing the 12 apostles. Have you ever stopped to consider why this particular account was inspired and preserved for us? What should we learn from this text? What spiritual truth can we glean from this text to apply to our lives as we seek to walk with God in faith and obedience? As I began to study this passage carefully in preparation for this sermon and look closely at this list of apostles, I could not help but think of 1 Corinthians 1, 25-29. Because of the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." In our text this morning, we see an incredible example of how the foolishness and weakness of God is wiser and stronger than men. How not many wise or noble or mighty are called. How God chooses the foolish and weak and base things, the despised things of this world, to bring to naught all those things which are the pride of men. And as we study this text, we ought to be moved to glorify God as we consider what He accomplished through the Apostles. Not because of who they were, but in many times in spite of who they were. In this text, we see God sovereignly working in the lives of sinful men to accomplish exactly what He wills. And such revelation should move us to humbly submit ourselves to God and to worship Him. From this passage, we learn that God delights to use the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. Before we begin, let's... Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that our hearts would be soft and open to the working of the Holy Spirit, that you would convict us from your word of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come, of sin that there is wrong, of righteousness that there is right, and of judgment to come that one day we will stand before you and have to give an account of all those things which we have done in our bodies. Lord, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in this time, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, let's consider the choosing. The choosing. And it begins with a night of prayer. Verse 12 says, And it came to pass in those days, he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. In this night of prayer, we see Jesus Christ, the Son, in his humanity, demonstrate his dependence on the Father. Though truly God, just as he was truly man, Jesus was not impulsive or presumptuous in his decisions. Jesus Christ, the Son, submitted to the Father's will in all things. He only did the will of the Father. And as he approached the calling of the twelve, he spent the whole night in fervent prayer. The next day's work was of extreme importance. The men that Christ selected would go on to change the world. Their influence upon the world as they were used by God would be immense and eternal. 
And so we see Jesus committed Himself to serious prayer on this matter. And this brings up an interesting question. To what extent was Christ's divinity informed by Excuse me, to what extent was Christ's humanity informed by His divinity? There are many times in the Gospels where we are told that Jesus knew things that only God can know. Yet as a man, Jesus prayed. There's somewhat of a spiritual mystery here in the interaction between the true humanity and the true divinity of Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded of Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. The trials that Jesus went through in His humanity were genuine trials. As genuine as is our need for prayer, so is Christ's. The pressure and the struggles and the need to seek the will and direction of God were as real in Christ's humanity as they are in our humanity. Christ endured this all for us and emerged sinless and victorious. He is our great high priest and He has empathy for us, His people. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The Creator God humbled Himself and entered His creation as a man to be our Redeemer. And the only appropriate response from us is to worship Him. Now this commitment to prayer that we see in the life of Jesus is an example for us in decision making. Jesus carefully and prayerfully considered the choice, and then as we will see, He went and chose the twelve. I have taken great comfort from this passage in the past when wrestling with decisions. Sometimes our desire to know the specific will of God in a given situation in our lives is so great that we can become paralyzed with indecision. We don't want to make the wrong choice. We don't want to mess anything up. We don't want to make a mistake that would dishonor or displease the Lord. And if we're not careful, this can lead us to freeze in indecision. Remember, God is sovereign. We do not hold the future. God does. We do not know the future. God does. And our responsibility as free and rational creatures is to glorify God. We're to study the Word of God, prayerfully seek His will, be active in obeying what God has clearly revealed to be His will. And if it still isn't clear what you should do in a given situation, we must make the best decision we can make and then leave those results to God. We are responsible, we are also limited. Again, we do not know the future, and it is not given to us to know the future. We must rely on the revelation God has given us in His Word, walking in obedience to His clearly revealed will, and honestly and earnestly seeking His specific will in prayer, just as our Lord did. But even if we do all those things to the absolute best of our ability, we will still sometimes make the wrong choice or a poor choice because we are limited, flawed human beings. But be encouraged. Our shortcomings, our failures, in no way limit God or keep Him from accomplishing exactly what He intends to accomplish. 
Remember God's words to Job. God said to Job in Job 41.11, Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Now I labor this point this morning because this is something that I struggled with, especially when I was in high school and college. Sometimes we treat the will of God as if it's some sort of mystical combination of specific events and decisions. And if we get everything perfectly right, then we're walking in that, quote, perfect will of God. And this leads us to overanalyzing our lives at every point, and again, wallowing in indecision. Here's what we know. Here's what we know about God's will for your life. It is indisputably God's will for you, Christian, to do today what you know is right based on God's Word and the Holy Spirit living within you. And then do that again tomorrow, and the day after that, and every day. And if you faithfully strive to do what you know is right every day, you will be in God's will. But you say, well, what if I make a decision and everything goes wrong? Well, if that happens to you, your responsibility on that day is the same as it is every other day. Do what you know is right based on the revelation of God's Word and the Holy Spirit living within you. You cannot go wrong walking in obedience to the Word of God. Now, this cannot be done flippantly. This is a very serious endeavor, and it requires us to be serious and devoted students of God's Word. But this is how we can know the will of God for our lives. I believe this passage illustrates what I've been saying. In His deity, Jesus knew Judas Iscariot was going to betray Him. This is mentioned several times in the Gospels, most notably in John chapter 6. Verses 64, and then again in 70 and 71. In his humanity, though, Jesus chose Judas Iscariot as one of the twelve apostles. And from a human perspective, with the benefit of hindsight, we could look at that decision now, and we can say, well, that that appears to be the wrong decision. That did not work out well. But from God's perspective, this was exactly what he had ordained. What Judas intended for evil, and he did it, in a perfectly free will, because he wanted to do it. What Judas intended for evil, God meant for good. Amen. To bring to pass as it is this day, to save many people. Amen. So Jesus prayed. He prayed all night. And then in the morning, in his humanity, he made his decision. After this night of prayer, the twelve disciples are called to be apostles. Look at verse 13. And when it was day, Jesus called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Sometimes we refer to these men as the twelve disciples. Sometimes in Scripture they're referred to as the twelve disciples. But here they are specifically called apostles. Now there were many disciples. You and I as Christians, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Followers of him, imitators of him. But these men were specifically chosen as apostles. So what is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? The word disciple means one who follows one's teaching. A disciple is not only a pupil, but an adherent. Disciples were imitators of their teacher. Again, we should all be disciples of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means one sent forth. 
An apostle was someone who was sent forth, who was given authority and power from the sender to speak on their behalf. It's like the idea of an ambassador in modern times. The Jews used this word apostle to refer to priests who were sent out by the Sanhedrin, who would go with messages or with authority from the Sanhedrin to all parts of Israel and even to the Jews who were dispersed. And so this was a familiar concept to the Jews at this time. Now these twelve who had been faithful disciples, Jesus would now give them power and send them out to speak on his behalf. And this is exactly what we see at the beginning of Luke chapter 9. Well, so far in this text, we have considered Jesus' preparation for and then the choosing of the twelve apostles. Now let's look at this list that we're given here and consider who these men were that Jesus chose. Now before I begin this section, I want to say that this is only a very basic overview. It's not my intention to give an in-depth profile of each of the twelve. There will be a few in this list that we spend more time on, but this is just a quick survey. There are many excellent resources available if you want to study the lives of these men more in depth. But our focus this morning is on how God delights to use the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. So let's consider the chosen. The first man in this list is Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Simon was one of the most prominent apostles. If you were to make a list of the most influential people in world history, even if you were to make this list from a secular perspective, Peter would undoubtedly be very high up on that list. But who was Peter? The only details that we have in our text is that his name was Simon. Jesus would name him Peter, which means rock. He was a disciple of Jesus before he was chosen to be an apostle. And his brother's name was Andrew. Andrew. We do find some other details about Peter in the Bible. Before his association with Jesus, Peter was a fisherman. He was not particularly well-educated or wealthy or powerful or influential. He was just a simple fisherman. Peter became a leader among the disciples and apostles and later in the church in Jerusalem. And he often acted as a spokesman for the apostles. Sometimes the things that Peter said were very good, such as his confession in Matthew 16, 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. At other times, Peter spoke without understanding, such as on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Luke 9, 33, we, we read, And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. And then Scripture tells us, not knowing what he said. On that occasion, Peter spoke without understanding. Sometimes Peter spoke rashly, and even foolishly. In Luke twenty-two thirty-three, Peter rashly said, there at the Last Supper, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. Just a few hours later, Peter would run away when Jesus was seized by the Jews and would go on to deny the Lord three times that night with cursing and swearing. In Matthew 16.20, we're told that Jesus began to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. And in the next verse, there in Matthew 16, verse 21, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And Jesus replied to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. On that occasion, Peter spoke foolishly. Yet Peter, all of his sin and all of his flaws and his lowly position in life, he was one of the men chosen by Jesus to be an apostle. Next in this list, we have Andrew. Andrew. This text tells us even less about Andrew, just his name, that he'd been a disciple of Jesus and that he was Peter's brother. And like Peter, he was involved in the family business as a fisherman. Also, like his brother, he was not particularly well-educated or wealthy or powerful or influential. In the eyes of the world, Andrew was nothing but a simple fisherman. Now, in the Gospels, Andrew is notable for bringing people to Jesus. In John 1, verse 42, we read that it was Andrew who brought Simon Peter to Jesus. In John 5, verse 8, Andrew brought the boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus. In John 12, 22, it was Andrew who went to Jesus to tell him of the Greeks who wanted to meet him. After the Gospels, Andrew is mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, in the list of apostles that's found there. And then Scripture is silent concerning this apostle. Next we have James and John. James and John. Our text tells us nothing but their names. Now we know from Scripture that they were brothers, the sons of Zebedee, and like Peter and Andrew, they were simple fishermen. James and John were called by Jesus the sons of thunder for their tempers and their inclination to boisterous behavior. In Luke 9:54, after a village of the Samaritans did not receive Jesus, these two brothers asked him, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? On that occasion, Jesus had to rebuke them. It was also James and John who asked Jesus in Mark 10:35, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy glory. In Matthew 20:20, 20, 20, the mother of James and John came to Jesus with that same request. And on both of those occasions, Jesus had to deny their request and correct the attitude of worldly ambition that motivated them. James and John were also part of that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, who Jesus separated from the twelve on several occasions, such as the Transfiguration or that smaller group for prayer in Gethsemane. James would go on to become an influential figure in the early church at Jerusalem. For his powerful and faithful witness for Jesus, he was the first of the twelve apostles to be martyred. Herod Agrippa had James put to death by the sword in Jerusalem around A.D. 44. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. John is sometimes called the beloved apostle because of his close relationship to Jesus. He was the disciple who sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the disciple Jesus entrusted with the care of Mary at the crucifixion. 
He would become one of the most prolific authors of the New Testament, writing the Gospel of John, the three epistles which bear his name, and the book of Revelation. And again, we see God accomplished great things through these men who were nothing but simple fishermen. Well, next in this list, we have Philip. Again, our text only gives us his name, and we know very little about him from Scripture. The only detail we know about the circumstances of his life is that he was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And we read about that in John 1.44. Philip was a very practical man with a show-me attitude. Sometimes this was good, and sometimes this was bad. Philip was among the earliest followers of Jesus, and he immediately went and told Nathanael that he had found the Messiah. And when Nathanael was doubtful, doubtful about this, Philip told him, Come and see. Come and see. Philip brought the Greeks to see Jesus in John chapter 12. This is good. May we, like Philip, be bold and faithful in bringing others to see Jesus. See Him as He is revealed in His Word. See Him as He is revealed or ought to be revealed through our lives. Peter was very practical. For example, he had already calculated the cost of feeding the 5,000 before Jesus asked in John chapter 6. It was Philip who said to Jesus at the Last Supper, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. He had not yet realized, as Jesus went on to tell him, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. The last mention we have of Philip in Scripture is the list of apostles found in Acts chapter 1. And then we have Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew is named in all four lists of the twelve apostles and nowhere else. Now, when we look at the Gospels as a whole, it's believed that Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person. Bartholomew is a surname. Nathaniel is a first name. And the only detail we know about his life is that he was from Cana in Galilee, which was a town near Nazareth, the same town where Jesus performed his first miracle. And he was initially skeptical when Philip came and told him that he had found the Messiah, Jesus from Nazareth. In John 1, 46, Bartholomew says, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But when he went to meet Jesus, Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. After the resurrection... He was among those who went with Peter and some of the other apostles when they returned to fishing. The last mention we have of Bartholomew in Scripture is the list of apostles in Acts chapter 1. Next we have Matthew. We've already spent quite some time dealing with Matthew in our study through the book of Luke. In chapter 5, we read of him, called by his other name, Levi. He was a publican, a tax collector. And we noted the abhorrence the Jews had for publicans. They were hated. They were outcasts from Jewish society. They were numbered among the greatest of sinners. And all of this was reproach they had willingly taken upon themselves for the sake of money and power and protection from Rome. Of all the apostles, it's likely that Matthew was the most wealthy among them when he was called. And based on his writing in the gospel account that bears his name, he appears to be a well-educated Jew with training and skill in record-keeping. 
But again, he wasn't using his wealth or education for good before Jesus called him. In fact, quite the opposite. He was a sellout, a turncoat, a traitor to his people. He had put a higher value upon the things of this world. He was a tax collector for the Romans. Little else is said in Scripture about Matthew. He is last mentioned in the list of apostles found there again in Acts chapter 1. Now we come to Thomas. Thomas. Our text only tells us his name. The only other personal detail we find in Scripture is that he was called Didymus, which means double or twin. At times, Thomas showed he was very brave and devoted to Jesus. In John 11, when Jesus announced to his disciples that he was going to Bethany, the other disciples protested because the Jews there around Jerusalem had recently tried to kill Jesus. But Thomas said, let us go and we will die with him. At the Last Supper, when Jesus told his disciples, Whither I go ye know, and the way ye know, Thomas asked, out of an apparent desire to remain with Jesus, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? But it was also Thomas who appeared the most shaken by the death of Jesus. The crucifixion seemed to have crushed his faith. He was not present with the other apostles when Jesus first appeared to them after his resurrection. And he did not believe that Jesus had been resurrected. In John 20, 25, he said, Except I shall see his hand, in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appeared again to the gathered apostles, and this time Thomas was among them. And Jesus said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. In John twenty twenty eight, we read, And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. That's a good confession. But Jesus said to him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and have yet believed. The last time we find Thomas mentioned in Scripture is again that list of apostles in Acts chapter 1. Now we come to the second James in this list. In this list he is called James the son of Alphaeus. That is everything the Bible tells us about this man. No specific words or acts from this James are recorded. He is found in all the lists of the apostles, and that is all. The name Alphaeus may be familiar to you. In Mark's account of the call of Matthew, or Levi, uh, we are told that he was also the son of Alphaeus. So were Matthew and this James brothers? It's quite possible, but the Bible does not specifically tell us if that's the case. The last mention we have of James in Scripture is the list of apostles in Acts chapter 1. Next is Simon. Our text calls him Simon, who is called Zelotus, or Zealot. In Matthew and Mark, he is called Simon the Canaanite. And this has nothing to do with his ancestry. Uh, the word Canaanite comes from the Hebrew word for zeal. Zeal. Simon was a zealot. What does that mean? The zealots were a religious group among the Jews with a very clear political agenda. They were trying to overthrow Roman occupation. In their 
religious beliefs. They were aligned with the Pharisees. But the Pharisees were very, in some ways, pragmatic. The Pharisees were willing to compromise to get things done. The Zealots did not know the meaning of the word compromise. They violently opposed Roman occupation. They carried out assassinations. Uh, They burned government buildings. They attacked Roman sympathizers among the Jews. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote that they were willing to suffer any death, endure any torture, and even allow their families to endure the same. They would not be deterred. The movement started around A.D. 6, led by Judas of Galilee, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 5, verse 37. His rebellion was crushed by the Romans, and his sons were crucified. But the Romans were unable to eradicate the zealots. They simply drove them underground. They would remain active in Israel, engaging the Romans in guerrilla warfare until the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem around A.D. 70. It's amazing that a man who was a member of a group like this, today we would think of them as terrorists, a member of that group became an apostle of Jesus Christ. A man who had hated the Romans and everyone associated with them became a co-laborer with Matthew the publican. What an incredible example this is of the transcending grace of God that can transform us and make those who were once our enemies into our brothers and sisters in Christ. The last mention we have of Simon the Zealot in Scripture is the list of apostles in Acts chapter 1. Next in the list is Judas. Our text says Judas, the brother of James. That's the King James Version. Some of the other translations say the son of James. Now, it is unclear which James this is referring to. If brother is correct, it's most likely referring to James the son of Alphaeus. If son is correct, it's probably not referring to any James found in Scripture. This is the only personal detail we find about him in the pages of Scripture. In Matthew and Mark, he is called Labius and Thaddeus. We do have one instance of him speaking in the Gospels. In John 14, verse 19, At the Last Supper, Jesus told the apostles, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And in verse 22, this Judas, so not Judas Iscariot, but this Judas, asked, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? This was an honest question from Judas. And it reveals he did not yet understand the kingdom. He was still looking for an earthly kingdom, and he did not understand how Jesus could reveal himself to them and not to the world. In the next verse, Jesus answered him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. The kingdom of Jesus Christ at this time is not of this world, but in the hearts of men. Those who love Jesus Christ and obey him will have God revealed to them in their hearts. The last mention of Judas in Scripture is again in that list of apostles in Acts chapter 1. Finally, at the very end of this list, we come to Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Our text says, Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. 
After Peter, Judas Iscariot is possibly the most well-known name among the apostles. But not for anything good that he did. He's infamous for his betrayal of Jesus. Every time Judas Iscariot is mentioned in Scripture, his betrayal is mentioned. Judas Iscariot is, I believe, the greatest example found in Scripture of an insincere faith. When we consider the life of Judas Iscariot, it should lead us to a careful examination of our own hearts as professing Christians. Humanly speaking, why was Judas Iscariot chosen as one of the twelve? He appeared to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. He must have given every outward indication of being a true, faithful, committed follower of Jesus. I believe that Judas himself believed at this time, at the time of his calling, that he was a true, faithful, committed disciple of Jesus. He did everything that a person could possibly do, outwardly, for spiritual benefit. He was a member in good standing of a good church, so to speak. He was one of the twelve. He had the best Christian association you could possibly have. He sat under the preaching of Jesus Christ. He served above and beyond with the other disciples. Among the apostles, he was so respected and trusted that he held the purse. He was the treasurer. He held their money for them. It was so inconceivable to the other apostles that Judas Iscariot could betray Jesus. That even when Jesus indicated that Judas would betray him at the Last Supper, and then Judas immediately left... The other apostles didn't say, oh, the betrayer. No, when Jesus left the Last Supper, we're told in John 18, 29, that they thought that he was going to pay the bill or buy something that they needed. They, didn't, they could not imagine that Judas Iscariot would be a betrayer of the Lord. Yet what happened to Judas Iscariot? As our text says, he was the traitor. He betrayed his master. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then after Jesus was condemned in the agony of his guilt, he committed suicide. In the end, Judas was proven to be one of those who cried, Lord, Lord, but whom Jesus never knew. These are the 12 apostles. We know almost nothing about many of them. And when we do know something about them, we find that they were poor, ignorant, weak, sinful men. These were not the cream of the crop which Israel had to offer. These were not the students of the rabbis at the temple. These were not the well-educated upper class in Israel. These were fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. And yet these men this most unlikely ragtag group God used to turn the world upside down. God delights to use the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. As we close, what application should we make to ourselves? First, take a serious warning from the life of Judas Iscariot. You can look like a Christian. You can talk like a Christian. You can walk where Christians walk. 
You can be a member of the best church and sit under the best teachers. You can be involved in ministry. You can fool everyone, even yourself. But in the end, still be a traitor to Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves and see whether we are in the faith. In whom are you trusting? On whom do you rely for your salvation? Many times the broad way runs parallel to the narrow path. But the narrow path leads to life everlasting, and the broad way leads to eternal destruction. Do you have assurance that you are on the narrow path? That you are a true follower of Jesus Christ? That you are relying on Him and Him alone? Nothing is more important to know than this. Don't let this matter rest. I implore you, if you are not sure, set up a time to meet with one of the elders or find a faithful brother or sister in Christ and dig into this. Know that you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Take warning from Judas Iscariot. Second, Christian, be encouraged and convicted by this truth. That God delights to use the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. There is never an excuse to not serve the Lord. You cannot say, I'm not gifted. I'm not strong enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not good enough to serve the Lord. If that's the way you feel, we have good news from 1 Corinthians 1.26. Not many wise, not many mighty, Not many noble are called. God has chosen to use the weak things of this world. And if God could use the 12 men that we read of here in our text, He can certainly use you. And certainly use me. Let us go forward and be faithful in serving the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for it being preserved for us. We can read it here this morning, glean from it. Lord, we are in awe at your choosing of these 12 and the way that you use them. We're thankful, Lord, that you are in control. There's nothing outside of your control. That even when things do not seem to be going right, you are still in control. Lord, help us to be faithful in following the example of our Lord in this text, to not be flippant, casual, cavalier in our decision-making, but rather to be serious students of your word, and prayerfully seek your will, and then, Lord, may we go out and faithfully serve you. May we be encouraged, as this text encourages us, that you delight to use the weak and the foolish things of this world to accomplish your will. Lord, may we take serious warning from the life of Judas Iscariot, Examine ourselves in the light of your gospel, that we may not be found without in the day of judgment. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.